So as we begin reading in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus." To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God, in Christ's sake, forgave you. The new year is not really so much uh, a Christian holiday, uh, although if, if you look back, you see that uh, God did give a New Year celebration to Israel when he brought them up out of Egypt. He, he told them that this would be the first of the days for them, that this, that would be their new year, and that that would commemorate the time that they came out of Israel by God's mercy. But in our celebration of the New Year, it's not necessarily a Christian holiday, although it can be used in a very good way in that sense, because it does give us an opportunity. It gives us an opportunity to look back, and it gives us an opportunity to look ahead. 
And we can look back at the last year and the highs and the lows of the last year and we can be thankful to God for the things that He's worked in our life. It gives us an opportunity for that gratefulness. It's a natural point for us to kind of evaluate our lives and see if we're living them in the way that, that is honoring to God and is profitable for ourselves and for others. And so in that sense, I think New Year's is, is uh, though it may not necessarily be a Christian holiday, I think it's very consistent with a Christian way of looking at things. We definitely celebrate a new life, and that is promoted without, throughout Scripture. And the place I want to look at it here this morning, obviously, is in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, because that's the focus, this new life in Christ. How do we live this new life? The Apostle Paul uses a lot of the same format that he does in, in his other epistles. He usually starts the first part of the book with doctrine. These are the things that we know are true. These are the things that we believe. And then he switches, usually partway through a book, to where he says, now based on all the things that we believe, how do we live? The first part of the book is all about this new life in Christ. And then when we get to the last half of the book of Ephesians, notice chapter 4 starts with the word therefore. Therefore, in other words, based on all the things that we've just talked about, our new life in Christ, how do we live that out? How do we make that practical in our everyday? Well, that's what I want to look at here this morning. And there's an awful lot within this passage, much more than we're going to draw out of it here this morning. But what I'd like to do is get a little bit bigger look at the passage so that we get to kind of the fundamentals down in our life. Well, as we consider this idea of new life in the new year, there are three different characteristics of the new life. The first characteristic that I see is actually in everything leading up to this, and that's because of that word, therefore. We need to remember that this is here for a reason. The instruction that we just read in chapter 4 is there because of chapters 1 through 3. So we need to not forget what he said, and that is that this new life is a life in Christ. That's been the whole focus. My last Bible, I went through and everywhere that it said in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, in all the things that were related to in Christ, I like highlighted them. And that page just lights up like a Christmas tree when you see all those highlights all over it. That is the theme of the book of Ephesians is in Christ. When we are born into this world, we are in, the Bible says, Adam. We're in Adam. And what do we have through Adam? Well, if you look back at the book of Romans, it talks about in Adam we have condemnation. In in Adam we have sin. We inherit our sinful nature from him. And so we're, we're this position. We're humanity. We're Adam's descendants. So we're in Adam when we come into this world. Now, when we put our faith in Christ, the Bible says we move from being in Adam to being in Christ. Just that phrase is an awesome phrase. It means because you are in Christ, that when God looks at you, what does he see? He sees Christ. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the sinfulness of Greg McClellan and all my past mistakes, and he would even be able to see my future ones. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ. You see, I made the best deal in the history of the world. At one point, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and at the moment that I did, I gave him all of my sin, and he gave me his righteousness. From that moment on, when I trusted in Christ, I am now In Christ, that's my position in the Bible. Before that, I was just a sinner in Adam. Now I'm righteous in Christ. And that's been the focus. In fact, he begins the book with a praise. He's celebrating, he's worshiping God for what God has done for us in Christ. 
Notice as we look back into chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In Christ we have forgiveness. In Christ we have redemption. In Christ we have adoption into God's family. In Christ we have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So in Christ we have all these great things that God through His power is accomplishing for us in our life in Christ. Only through Christ have I been known from before the foundation of the world by God. Only through Christ do I have the forgiveness of sins and the redemption and the adoption into His family and all these things I have in Christ. We have a new resurrected life in Christ. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul wants these Ephesians, and by extension us, to understand everything that we have in Christ. In fact, when you get to the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 3 both, He tells them what his prayer for these people is as he's been praying for them and continues to pray for them. In verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? You see what he's saying? He's saying God has done all these things for us in Christ. He says, my real prayer for you is that you would latch on to that. That you would really get a grip on all that God has done for you in Christ. Because it's astounding. Toward the end of chapter 3, in verse 14... It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So you see, when we put these two prayers together, the Apostle Paul is explaining to them all that they have in Christ. In chapter 2, he's going to tell them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God has made you alive in Christ with this new life. And he's saying, I really want you to understand. 
I want you to be filled with the knowledge of this. I want you to understand the power of God that is in your life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that they'll be able to live out this new life. Even though Christianity has a lot of helps, there's a lot of encouragement, there's a lot of commands within the Bible that teach us how to live out a life before God, it's not just some self-help book. The fact of the matter is, is we cannot overcome the struggles in our life and the temptations within our life unless we're abiding in Christ. It's not just about taking the rule book and putting it to work in our life. It's kind of like what Jesus said in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus gave him an example. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. What does a branch have to do to bear fruit? You have to abide in the vine. The branch gets everything that it needs from the vine, and if it's a healthy branch, then it produces fruit. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. What do you have to do to bear fruit? Abide in me. In other words, you cannot separate the practices of the Christian faith from the principle of abiding in Christ. It's a relationship with Him. Now, if we abide with Him, we're going to practice the practices that are spelled out within the Bible, and we're going to shun the ones that the Bible tells us to stay away from. Place They are fulfilled, but they're fulfilled in us as we abide in Christ. It's not just about keeping the rules that are in the Bible. We will keep those. It's about abiding in Christ. We need to keep our focus on that relationship with Him. This new life and the new year is to be lived out in Christ. And secondly, the new life is a life of community. Every once in a while, somebody asks me, where does the Bible tell you you have to go to church? And uh, I think the last person that asked me that, I gave them this answer. Everywhere. Everywhere. Church is actually kind of the skeleton that the flesh of the New Testament is hung on. When you look at the New Testament, you can read all these books and find all these helpful things to do in your life and these things that we need to believe and and understand and all those deals. But sometimes we just miss the church because it's submerged in it. When you realize that the Bible was written to churches and it was written to leaders in churches for the purpose of sharing with their church. And it was churches that the Apostle Paul was establishing and planting. He was out winning converts to Jesus Christ. He would win converts and then assemble them into a, into a church. And even if you look back into the Old Testament, what do we see God doing? God making His holy people. And He makes the nation of Israel. He, he has His gathering of people. God's always gathering His people together. And that's what we see within the New Testament. Well, the book of Ephesians is just full of the church. These people are now positioned in Christ How do we live that out? You see very clearly in the book of Ephesians that we live that out by living in community. Notice right where we started in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How do we do that? Verse number 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. These are relational terms. How do you be gentle if you're not gentle toward another person? Uh, how, do you, how do you be humble if it's not humility in regards to your relationship toward other people? You can't forbear one another in love without being part of a one another. And that's the whole process. If you go back into chapter 2, he's already been talking to them about this. He calls it the mystery. The mystery because the church is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God told Abraham way back in that covenant that I'm going to bless you and everybody who blesses you all bless. Those who curse you all curse. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, here's the part, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, what do we see in the church? We see this new covenant 
where Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, becomes that blessing to the world. And the church starts. Jesus told his apostles beforehand, he says, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to build it upon you guys. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus is building his church, and the church is already in existence, and it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The people from all nations, all ethnic groups, all people groups, will all come together in one in Christ, in the church. And that's the context that we grow in. That's the context that we live our life in. When you become in Christ, you're in Christ. And what is the church? The church is the body of Christ. And so you're now part of a body. Life, this life is not meant to be lived alone. This faith is not meant to be experienced alone. And all through the Bible you see it. All through the New Testaments especially. The commands that He gives us are all commands that are carried out in the context of community. And that community is the church. He goes through and He teaches us what? How to relate with one another. And He says, forbearing one another in love. The easiest way I can think of to put that is put up with one another. In love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Can you imagine in Ephesus? The church in Ephesus would have had to do some forbearing with one another. Why? Because there's going to be some Jewish believers there. The Apostle Paul always went into the synagogue first and preached the gospel to the Jews, and then he reached out to the Gentiles in the surrounding area, brought them all in as one into the church. So you're going to have all these old Orthodox Jews that are part of the church. And Ephesus was like a a capital of pagan worship. There were idols and temples and all kinds of, of pagan worship going on there. And you're going to have people that used to go to those temples and used to have those the, a, diff, a completely different lifestyle coming in. And here we are to, in with those Orthodox Jewish people that have been raised on the law. And they were going to have a lot of things to get used to in one another's lives. And you know what the Apostle does? He does not start the Hebrew campus, and the Gentile campus in the church. It's the mystery of God. It all comes into one. And he says, you be gentle with one another, and you reach out to one another, and you put up with each one another in love, and you're going to be one. Look in chapter 2, verse 18. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place For God by the Spirit. Remember last week we talked about that, how Jesus came and tabernacled among us, made His dwelling among us. And we talked about how God's dwelling place was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and which became the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that today, where is the temple? Where is the dwelling place of God? It's in us individually, since we house the Holy Spirit as individuals are temples of God. But we also said that the Bible says that we collectively, as the church, are the dwelling place of God. We're the temple of God. This is the passage that deals with that. As the church, we are the dwelling place of God. Notice the the descriptive phrases. He says we're being joined together in verse 21. In verse 22, we're being built 
together. You see, the church only functions and functions properly if it's being built together, if we're joining together, if we're celebrating our faith together, if we're learning how to live out this faith together. Now, when we get to chapter 4, where we read in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. There's a lot of oneness there. He's saying, look, there's a, there's a lot of unity here in the things that we believe. One Lord, one faith, one God, one baptism, one, 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 one. There's unity. That's what there has to be within the church, this unity. At the same time, notice after all those words one, notice verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, he's saying, look, we're all one, but we're going to have different gifts. He talks about how God sent a pro- some were apostles, some were prophets. Those are foundational gifts. And then the continuing gifts of pastor and teacher and, and other places give a more detailed list. But in other words, he's saying, look, we don't all have the same gifts. And so we have a unity, but not a uniformity. It's the same thing that you see within the body. He talks about the church being the body of Christ. Well, how does a body work? Not all of the body is the same. We carry out different functions. Notice in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now notice there's two things in there. He says every joint needs to be in place. You know what that means? It means your presence here is important. It means everybody's presence here is important. It means we as a church don't function like we should unless we have you. And then notice it also says that we have to function properly. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, the church is an amazing place where you have all these different people with different backgrounds and different walks of life and they come together and they believe and they trust in Christ and they're part of this, they become part of the same family and they start to learn how to forbear with one another and put up with each other in love and they grow together and my gifts encourage your gifts and your gifts encourage my gifts and we get to start functioning as a body. And when one of us isn't functioning the way we should, we're handicapped. You know what? As goes the church, so goes the individual. You cannot be what you want to be, what you need to be as an individual without the church. It's impossible for you to keep all the commands without the church. And the church is not what it needs to be without you. It's important that every part is there and working together. When I first came here, I remember somebody came up and they were had some criticisms of the church. And this isn't taken care of, and this isn't taken care of, and this isn't taken care of. And uh, finally, after going kind of through uh, most, I think, if not all of the list, I just, uh, I just asked him a question. I said, so, why haven't you taken care of it? And, and he said, wait a minute, <laughs> what? And I said, well, why, why haven't you taken care of it? I said, what is, what is the church? You can't criticize the church without criticizing you. Because you're part of the church. And so if there was something that should have been Done in your mind. Well, why didn't you do it? And I said this. I said, you know, you're part of this church. 
I said, you obviously have an interest in these kinds of things because every, everything that you've pointed out to me is similar. And so you obviously have an interest in those kind of things. I would dare say you might have a gift in that area because people tend to focus on what their gift is. I said, so you know what? If you're part of this church and you're gifted in this area, then you're probably exactly the person that God has in place in this church for a reason. To fix those things that need to be fixed. When we look at through Ephesians chapter 4, we don't have time to go through all of it. But if you read through the passage again, notice what he says. God gives structure and leadership to his church so that he can equip the people within the church so that they can perform the works of the ministry. God is putting together his church all as a body. And everybody has different gifts and insights and abilities. As Christ gave to you. He didn't give me the same thing He gave you. And He didn't give you the same thing as this person sitting next to you. But He wants you to function in this proper way. So that as we all function together properly, what happens is, I'm getting what I need from you and you're getting what you need from me. Same with the person across the pew from you. And, and we are a mutual encouragement and we all grow into maturity together in Christ. You're not going to mature the way God wants you to as an individual without living within this community of the church. You know, Hebrews tells us the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 10, and this is a very blunt place where it tells us to participate in church. He says, Therefore, brothers, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So notice what He, what he says there. Since we have all of these things in Christ... We have now been brought into the presence of God. We have this relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Now, because of that, how should we live? He tells them to do three things. Because of this relationship that we have in Christ, let us draw near. So draw near to God with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Secondly, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So notice what he's saying. Because of what Christ has done for us, and he's our high priest, he brings us to God. What should we do? We should draw near. We should hold fast. And then lastly, he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we draw near to God. We hold fast to God, to our confession. And we consider how to stir one another up. Well, how do we do that? By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to be gathering together, as we do regularly, to encourage one another, to stir one another up. So we live in Christ, we live in community, then also the new life is a life of character. And that's what the rest of chapter 4 from verse 17 on is about. And basically what he's telling them is, in Christ you are a new person. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the rest of this chapter is teaching us how to live out that new life, which is a life of character. And we see this principle of putting off and putting on. Kind of like changing your clothes. He says we have, all have this old man, this corrupt nature, and we need to take that off. And we need to put on this new man in Christ. Now, then he gives several practical examples of that. He says we need to put off lying and speak the truth. He says we need to put off anger 
and seek peace. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Go and fix whatever problem you have in between you. Married couples, that's hardly any better advice than you can get with that. Never let the sun go down on a problem. Stay up till it's fixed. He says those who stole, don't steal anymore, but rather go to work so that you'll have something to give to somebody else that has a need. Gossip tells us not to use our tongue in a bad way, but rather a way that builds up. There's that phrase again. Be building up, encouraging. He says replace revenge with forgiveness. And then when we get into chapter 5, he talks about promiscuity and all kinds of sexual sins. And he says replace that with self-control. And lastly, he also mentions drunkenness. And then he compares it to life in the Spirit. He says don't let alcohol take control of you. Let the Holy Spirit take control of you. Let Him direct your path. So as we live out this new year, Christians are called to live this new life. We live this new life in Christ. It's meant to be lived in community with one another. And if you're not involved in this community that Christ has called the church, then you're not living the way God wants you to live. And lastly, this new life involves character that sheds the sins of the past and walks in obedience to Christ.